creative journey It's easy to get lost But don't worry, you'll lift off Sometimes you just need a creative pep talk Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. Today on the show, we have an extremely special guest, Malika Garib, author and illustrator of the new graphic memoir, It Won't Always Be Like This, which is about her summers that she spent with her dad in Egypt as a teen. I read this book and was like immediately like, I really want to have a, you know, when you have a book that just hits you and you wish you could talk to the person who made it and it's like, this meant something to me. I am, you know, privileged enough to sometimes when that happens, have a podcast where people actually agree to have those conversations. That's what this is. I was so moved and excited about this story that when Malika said that she would be on the show, I was over the moon and through the roof. And this conversation was everything I hoped it would be and more. And and it was a complete dream. And speaking of dreams, you may have also heard of uh, Malika's previous graphic memoir, which is called I Was Their American Dream. That was a really popular book as well. Malika is a storyteller like I am, and she works in visual formats like her two graphic memoirs, but she also works as an editor on podcasts at NPR for her day job. So as you can imagine, there was tons of things for us to hash out and talk shop about creatively, creative process-wise, in terms of visual storytelling and just a creative practice. I really, really love this conversation and I love this creator and I know that you're going to as well. So let's get to it. But really quick, before we do that, doodly doodly that, we need to have a quick word from our lovely sponsors we love, um, who we couldn't do the show without and who make amazing things that are relevant to creators just like you. So let's, let's get to that. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Yushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new fluid engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. 
got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him like, you should go check it out. You're gonna be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was gonna tell you about this new site anyway. Go check it out, anyjpizza.com if you wanna see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. wanted to start with something that I, that was a little bit of a concern after researching your work and watching some of your talks. And this kind of gets on a personal note. So I hope you don't mind. As I was looking through everything, I started to worry about like, what's left in your life when, you know, you lost pop culture when you were coming into teenage years. Then the death of Ska, the death of Tower Records. Then you just wrote off music completely. And you were in the food game and just magazines. And I was like, please tell me food is not dead to you. Like as a personal foodie, you still love food, right? Um, actually, food is no longer an interest for me. <laughs> <laughs> What's left? What's I don't know. You have all these very distinct phases, which I relate to. As someone with ADHD, I have the phases, but I just thought it was funny that you have these very specific eras. I, I have a new era. It, okay, I'll tell you what it? my new era is. Yeah. Um, so this is oh, sounds so lame, but like I have this <laughs> um, this newsletter called "A List of Beautiful Things." Yeah where I sort of curate these, um, this like internet ephemera and it's like art, apps, movies, music, illustration, excerpts and quotes and TikToks and, and things that have really moved me. And, um, and that things that I find like aesthetically beautiful to me. And I try to sort of pinpoint what about it resonates with me and makes it aesthetically pleasing to me. And I've started to perform them in real life. So there is a poetry group here in Nashville, and they invited me to uh, do a live performance of my newsletter in which I basically do a, a show and tell and read poetry and excerpts and show film clips and things like that. And that's been my new era. This is my new era. Awesome. I'm glad to have an update on it. And I figured <laughs> as soon as I was writing that, I thought, I bet food's over. Food, food is over. Done. I'm not <laughs> interested. I, you know what I had for lunch today? I had uh, Amy's Chili Mac, frozen Chili Mac. <laughs> I've gone Amy's. Yeah, I've gone from like being hypercritical about food to just being a trash like, person. It's just fuel to you now. It's dead. Yeah, um, that's so funny. And I, I very much relate. But I also noticed that throughout all those phases, it seems like. Uh, storytelling, magazines, journalism is a thread that kind of runs through all of that. And I was curious, like, what what do you think that's all about, this kind of cataloging the phase that you're in? And what do you get from, what do you get from the process of doing it? Or what do you get from your favorite 
outlets of these stories? Like, why do you think that is such a through line for you? I've been thinking a lot about this more critically. And I think that the main mean for me is that the, the, the MO to all of my art is to sort of compress like the maximum feeling to the smallest amount of space. I think that's what I liked so much about zines um, when I was a teenager, this idea that I could create my own world in the confines of a few pages. Same thing with why I went to magazine. I studied magazine journalism. I wanted to be a part of uh, a team that is basically collecting all this information and curating it into this this world presented to you in a $7 indie magazine. I never made it to magazine journalism because magazines died in um, 2008. To many everyone, folded. not just to you. That to was, everyone. That was everybody. <laughs> um, which sadly, uh, so, you know, that's why it prompted me to create my own indie magazine later uh, on food, The Runcible Spoon, and then um, continue making zines and comics, which are also this idea of self-containing uh, an idea in a small space. For me, it's kind of like you're putting together this puzzle and trying to find the right words and the images and and combine them and, and sort of say something very succinctly. And um, if you look at my Instagram, I mean, my zines are becoming t- smaller and smaller. <laughs> They're now like the size of postage stamps. And I think that like... I really loved this idea in in comics of the economy of line, like saying the maximum with the least amount of pen strokes. I think of it as kind of a, a small joke to myself. I love that, and I and also uh, bringing up jokes. I was gonna go to. It reminds me of the the economy of words that you hear comedians talk about all the time. Of like how quick can you get to the punchline and it be as the maximum potency and it it and I, I love that I've thought a lot about that too in terms of like your thoughts and your feelings and the stuff that in your experiences are like the coffee beans but in order for anybody else to be interested in it you really got to get it down to the espresso you have to get it down to something that can be like easily consumed max potency and I think it would make sense that you would make these graphic memoirs because, you know, graphic novels have that kind of potency in comparison to classic novels. You know what I mean? There's something so visceral and and quick and it hits you really hard. I feel like it's a good medium if that's your cup of tea or your cup of coffee to stay on the. Yeah. I also think about like, the importance of, of omission, omission and space and white space, like what you're not saying speaks volumes for you. It allows the viewer to sort of fill in the blanks and the way that you make those connections with your words and your images is also speaks to your own cleverness, right? Like I like, I get tickled by the idea like, Oh, they'll make this jump with these two images. They'll make the jump. And I find that to be really challenging with graphic novels. And I love that in music too. Like, you know, in Al Green, Al Green uses a lot of silence and um, space in his songs uh, to sort of get his groove going. And Mm. your mind makes mental leaps. Um, And in poetry, you see that too, obviously. So... Uh, potency really of words, potency of words, but also 
um, the largeness of white space. The potency of no words, the the space in between. I I love that too because I feel like the best uh, creative work, the moment is something that happens within your head. You know, I love um, back to stand up comics. I love when they don't need to say the punchline even because they have set all the pieces up and then they can just sit there until you get it. <laughs> I love that. It's so powerful because it's, there's a respecting of the audience too. Cause you're like, I don't have to spell it out. Like you're going to, you're going to make I it, set it up for you. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah, that's really interesting. That's um, genius. That makes me so that's the part. That's the fun part. Same. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, you know, people that listen to this show knows, know that uh, the mechanics of creativity and the kind of applied psychology side of creativity is, is my jam. So uh, yeah, we're, we're right on the same page there. So I, I want to talk a little bit about your new graphic memoir, which um, it's called, it won't always be like this. And I loved it. It was incredible. Oh, thank I really, you. I really loved it. And it, it transported me to uh, a place I've never been or experienced it in any way, um, but made it come to life. And then also it really did make me tear up several times. Um, and so I know it's a crazy amount of work and um, I just want to say congrats because it's really incredible. Thank you so much. Oh man. I, um, I just, you know, you know, when you write something, you're usually doing it for yourself and you don't know, but you're also doing it for an audience. I'm sure you've talked about this a lot in your, in your podcast. Um, and you tell yourself it's not about an audience, but the thing is that you want to be understood and seen, you want your emotions to be understood and seen. So there is some sort of sense of wanting validation from the audience that what you created resonates. And so it's really nice to hear that you felt that way. It was, it is so good. I recommend everyone go get it. It's, it's quick and potent. Um, and, uh, I actually also, as soon as I finished it, gave it to my 14 year old daughter who is a voracious reader. Um, and, uh, she loved it as well. And it, she, oh, she felt all kinds of big feelings, um, about the storylines. And, uh, I think you did an incredible job. Could you just tell us briefly, like what the book is about? Absolutely. So um, I grew up in Los Angeles. I'm, I'm Filipino Egyptian American. Um, I was uh, very much into the, well, I grew up in Los Angeles. My parents got a divorce and my dad ended up going to Egypt and spending the rest of his life there. And so I had to spend my summers back and forth between my dad and my mom, between uh, my, with my mom in LA and my dad in Egypt. And one summer when I was nine years old, my dad told me that he was remarrying and he had married this woman who was like, kind of half his age and closer to my age and uh, that he would be starting a new family and living in Egypt permanently. And I was thinking like, this is going to change our vibe, dad. This is like totally going to mess up what we were, we had, we had a great life. And now Hala, my stepmom's come along and now I have to have a relationship with her and she doesn't even speak English. Um, and so the, the story is really about um, how I was able to forge a relationship with my stepmother and my siblings who were born after that in that time period, and also just being a teenager and a young person in my early 20s, uh, trying to understand my relationship to the Middle East, um, trying to understand my relationship to my Americanness. Um, I had a lot of opinions about what it meant to be American, but then being dropped into a space where it was the Middle East, like, how do I 
carry myself? How do I purport myself? How do I um, have relationships with other people? And I never even picked up Arabic. So that was difficult. Um, so this story is about trying to fit into a blended family. It's about trying to understand my place in the Middle East. And it's about um, ultimately the death of our family. Um, I don't want to give any spoilers, but it's like the death of our family unit um, forever and ever and after, ever after that. Yeah. And it's, I'll tell you what, it is one of the, I, I feel very privileged uh, to do this podcast and I've had the chance to talk to a lot of people who have made work that I just uh, really love. And as you were going through it, I was like, I know this story because like I, like I just was feeling like I'm talking to the person that I just uh, experienced this book from. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's really good. And I thought, you know, the specifics of it, I, I found it like, um, it, it does that incredible thing where you go so hyper specific in what your experience was. And I found myself deeply relating on these, all these levels, including like visiting my mom. I lived, I grew up in Indiana and I would visit my mom when she lived in West Virginia in the summer or in Florida. And in a very tiny way, I can kind of just relate to just being dropped in a place where like, I don't know any of this stuff. And you, obviously your experience was more extreme than that, but it just, the, the specificity of the writing just really brought it to life um, for me. So thank you. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I just like, <clears throat> there was no internet back then too. So you had to sort of make your own fun. And yes. that was very sad and difficult and awkward. And you had, it's just awkward. It's awkward when you don't know yeah. where to place yourself. Yeah. I felt that uh, one of the feelings that I experienced while I was reading it was that same thing. If I'm going to go be at my mom's in West Virginia with, without any of my friends, without any, like, uh, she also didn't have like video games and stuff that I had at my dad's house. And I just felt that like, there's a kind of, um, prison sentence to like, I'm here now and there's none of my stuff here. And you're, you know, I felt that kind of like that feeling of just being like bored and stuck and all you just, you illustrated that so well. I just was, uh, really was, is that it. why you became an illustrator? Because sometimes I felt like my notebook was my only friend, my only yes, pastime. Like entertaining myself and yeah. Yes. Sit quietly and draw in the corner. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I heard in one of your talks, I was really struck by the, the last graphic novel you made, a graphic memoir was a, a real discovery process. And I'm always interested in how creativity, we often ha have this like feeling like we need to make a statement, but often making the work is, is as much a discovery process as it is like, oh, I'm saying this or I know this. And uh, I loved how you talked about with the last book, there was this discovery through the process of, realizing you wanted this authentic American experience, but you felt like sometimes that was at odds with being the, the child of immigrants only to realize that full circle, that that is a very authentic American yeah, experience. That's completely um, valid. It's one of the, <clears throat> yeah, it's one of the quintessential American experiences really. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I just, it made me, I love that so much. And I thought it was so, potent as a statement. 
that I wondered if you discovered things that surprised you as you moved into this new story. Like yeah. as you went along, what 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 did you learn about this part of your life? I think the central question that I want to explore when writing um, It Won't Always Be Like This was um, how did my summers in Egypt and Qatar affect my worldview? And is it possible, how was it possible for me to develop very deep connections with people without a common language, without a common understanding of social norms or culture and religion? This is a very Islamic country and Islamic family, uh, especially in living in Qatar. It was, you know, a lot of people are wearing abayas. It's more conservative than Egypt. And how how was it possible for me to navigate all of these environments that were so different from Orange County, California, where I listened to punk music and went to Lakmum with my mom and indie bookshops and drew comics and made zines and went to Tower Records. There's just a totally different lifestyle. And what I found from doing the book to answer the first question, how did it shape my worldview? It, it taught me the second part. It, it taught me that, that, that it is possible to make these very deep relationships because you have to make an effort to connect with someone and you don't really need that. You don't really need much to create deep connections with people. You don't really need language or common understanding. It's, it's about making the effort to try to have a relationship with someone. And when that feeling is mutual, you can get a lot done. You can move mountains. You can find yourself smoking a cigarette with your stepmom at, you know, age 22 and being like, yeah, I totally get that you are not happy right now. We don't need to say any words. I feel you. Let's just look at the view of the ocean and not talk. And, and that's okay. Like I'm, I'm there for you. So I realized that like, um, it's about, it's, I, I understood and saw for the very first time as an adult, the tremendous effort that my dad deployed to forge a relationship with me. I lived 7,000 miles away from my, my dad and he was in an awkward position. Now he had three children, a new wife, yet he still insisted that I come over every summer to spend time with him. Even though he was working, that showed tremendous dedication um, of, of him wanting to include me in my life. And even though I found him very annoying and uh, prescriptive and, uh, you know, just conservative and you don't get me and like, you know, you don't even under, you're living on another planet, dad, like all the teenage angsty things compounded by not having this, a shared culture. He was making the effort. My stepmother was making the effort. My siblings were making the effort. And so therefore I in turn had to make the effort, even if it was just a charade for the moment. And then when I'll give a small spoiler here, but I guess you can see where this is going um, as the reader. But when my dad and my stepmom's marriage dissolved, I realized that all of those years that we had together, that was it. All, all of these efforts of trying, that was all the time that we had together as one family unit. And um, I ended up realizing I appreciated that. We had that at all, then never have had, never having it.
going to ask you this later, but I think I'll just go there now. I do a lot of public speaking, uh, and it's about t- telling true stories from my life. And yet mm-hmm. I'm still employing all the things that I've learned and know about storytelling um, when that when they apply. And I was curious how your background influenced the decisions that you made. For instance, like there feels like there's this clear parallel between you and your stepmom, Hala, where you really want your family to be something it's not growing up as an American get me. kid. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a sort of to get me to be like a, an American family you'd see on TV. Yes. Yeah. And yet there's a parallel where you're watching Hala become something she isn't in a, from someone else's point of view or someone else's or the culture's point of view or, or because of the marriage. Uh, and it seems like it kind of comes to a head of acceptance for both sides where you learn to accept your dad as he is and Hala finds a way to be her, be herself. Uh, you know, as I go tell my own stories, I'm always kind of trying to figure out what the line is between storytelling and, you know, just the events as they happened. And I was curious as you were working through that, if these kind of parallels were either unconscious or not at play or purposeful or, you know, what things were you, in terms of thematics, were you employing different levels or were you just trying to tell it as it was? Does that yeah, make sense as a question? Uh, it was it was kind of a, a long paragraph of a question. No, this is great. Um, you've given me a lot to think about. I'll okay. try to attack things from different perspectives. For one, I thought that Halla, at first Halla was a foil to my mom. My mom was different from Halla. Halla was a sister figure. She was young. She was vibrant. My mom was a mother. She was older. She's the same age as my dad. She's not in this book a lot, but you get the sense that she is not like Halla. And I don't see Halla as a mother figure. She's a friend. As I get older, I started to see Halla as a foil, not to, to my mother, but to me. This is an alternative version of myself um, that grew, that ha- happened to grow up in the Arab world. Uh, I grew up in the West and she grew up in the East. And this is what a life for a woman looks like in the East. And the way that she shows her power, I only understood as an adult much later, even though she grew up it, with a certain set of um, values in the East, didn't mean she had any less power or agency than some a woman in the West. She deployed that in, in her own ways, in her own subversive ways. And you'll find that at the end of the book. And for me, ultimately, I learned from her that her acts of courageousness would far outmatch anything I could do in my own personal life. And the times that I looked at her with pity or through stereotypical Western lenses um, of, of a woman in the Arab world, they were like a complete reversal and shock for me about of how she was able to show just how 
powerful and brave she was. That for me was, um, I think it's the first time I'm talking about her character that way. Mm. Yeah. I would think, I hope that, does that answer your question? Yeah. If you can, if you want to say anything else, go ahead. I'm fine to camp out here for a minute. I'll also say, I think one of the things that you had mentioned was, was it, was it about approach, uh, to storytelling? Um, so I think that for me as a journalist, the, the thing that I'm most interested in a diarist, like a lifelong diarist, the thing that I'm most interested in is, um, creating some version of the truth that is agreed upon by multiple parties, because that is the closest version of the truth. I think truth is subjective, right? It's my truth, your truth, but we can agree on some version of the truth. And that shared version of the truth is the, the truth I'm, I'm most interested in sharing mm-hmm. or an agreed upon version. So, you know, when working on this book, I um, approached it like a journalist. There are no fake names. There are no um, exaggerated stories. Uh, there are no exaggerated places or made up places. I used, um, I, it was all fact. I mean, it, as much as my, t- my ability, it was fact-based. I did um, interviews with family members and old family friends who I hadn't spoke to in decades and awkwardly had to tell my cousin Ahmed, for example, that I liked him. Um, and he, he was like, ma'am, I have three kids. I <laughs> do not have time for this right now. Oh <laughs> and so, but for the sake of my own, um, my own, com- like, I guess like a, moral compass of like how I navigate memoir and this is how I choose to, to approach it. And with my stepmom and dad, um, I, I gave them, I worked every chapter of the book, I would hand it off to my dad and I would hand off it to my brother Ahmed, who would then translate it for my, my, my uh, stepmom Hala to then feedback on. And, um, and then we, I would reconvene and look over the facts and then, do another version and have this painful back and forth over the series of months. And there are things that they conceded on. Like my dad would say like, well, I don't remember doing that to Selma pinching her. And then, well, I'll say like, well, I remember it and Selma remembers it. So we're going to include it. And then also the thing about, about uh, like writing memoir too, it's like, I really wanted Hala to understand this is, you know, the Arab world is a private private community, right? Like families don't let you in and on their secrets. They don't air dirty laundry. Uh, Arabs are known for being very hospitable and, um, you know, kind people. And so, you know, showing a bad part of yourself is not really part of our culture. So I really wanted Hala to understand that, that, you know, I would be revealing, uh, publicly, not only her full name, but her, biggest sin, uh, you know, as a mother, as a woman in the Arab world? And was she ready for the public to hear that? And I think that um, in journalism, you have to make it when you interview a source, you have to make sure that they know the implications of what it means to have a photo taken and posted online. It is forever. So I really want Hella to understand that. Mm. I asked her several times before I signed the contract. (laughs) That's really, that's, that's important. And I, and just to be clear, when I'm telling my personal stories, I I don't have the journalistic background, but I do do my best to make them as accurate as possible when I'm talking about facts, but in terms of what stories to include and what, and then also the commentary that you're adding to it, that's where I am interested in. Like, that's how you weave the, the narrative 
of like, this is how I perceive it. And, and it kind of, one question I had was the, the way that it ends and the, in kind of your take on what happened, I was curious about as you're framing this, these decisions, the way that young you is perceiving these events, is there a part of you that is looking back and having different takes on it? Let me get, I'll get more specific because it's too ab- abstract, but. Oh no, I know what you mean. Okay. You, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Cause I, I really related to that, even though again, totally different culture, I had several people in my family, several women leave their husbands, different things. And I remember as a kid, I was, that was framed for me in a particular way. And I, that's the perspective I adopted until I was in my thirties and looking back on it and seeing it totally different. So that element of story was really interesting to me of like, Yes, these all might be facts, but the way you're presenting them, either through your illustration or what things you choose to share or the opinions that you share on on good, bad, what you know, all just your take. Um, there's a lot of storytelling perspective within that. And yeah, I'm curious if, uh, especially at the end, if you if your views of these events as you wrote about them, evolved over time or just evolved as you aged? Yeah. So, um, I'll give away the ending. It's, it's fine. Okay. I think that you still have to, you still have to read the book anyways. Yes. Um, yeah. but in the end, uh, Halla decides to leave my dad, um, after 17 years of marriage. And, um, she, in addition to leaving my dad, she leaves the kids with him, which in, in all cultures around the world, um, a mother leaving her children, is a very heartbreaking act, particularly so in the Arab world, particularly so because Hala had no means to take care of them. She'd always been a housewife um, and then would survive uh, not on my dad's salary, but on the the, um, remains that she had from her father's um, inheritance uh, for the rest of her life. You know, when this happened, when I was... um, you know, in my early 20s, and I found this out, I was very angry at Hala. I was very upset that she would do such a thing and leave my very young siblings, 19, 14, and 15, with my dad. My dad, who had, the last time he had been a single dad was when I was nine years old, um, and he was a great single dad. He was doing it with three kids, and then also doing it in the in Qatar, where he could not even enter the girls' school grounds because he was a man, so he couldn't even negotiate like tuition fees or like, you know, talking to the school teachers about like issues he had with his girls. Uh, he couldn't even drop the kids off like, you know, in, inside the school ground area. I mean, this is so awkward. It's also taboo to talk about divorce in Arab society. So he couldn't really tell his friends that he, you know, he, he was going through a divorce. So it's just like an awkward and horrible experience for everyone. And so I did, I did feel anger, anger and resentment toward Hala. But as a writing it as, as somebody in my, my early thirties, I'm now in my late thirties. Uh, now that the book is done, um, starting to write the book in my early thirties, I, I started to have a lot of sympathy for her. Um, under, now that I had been in a, in a relationship for, you know, over a decade, 
with my husband and, um, you know, finding myself in close to the time when she had first gotten married and experiencing my midlife, I realized that what she had done was um, probably the greatest act of sacrifice that a woman could possibly make for their own freedom. And the stakes are even higher in, in the part of the world where she lives. And for that, I, it struck me like, um, like a sack of bricks. Like, like I just I realized like she was the strongest person I had ever met. Um, and I realized that only now in my early 30s. Uh, I had known her since I was nine, and I had not come to that conclusion until I finished writing the book. Um, and so I'd cried a lot writing that scene because uh, I didn't understand it then as a young person, but I understood it now as an adult. That's uh, really fascinating. I, and you know what is uh, bizarre is that uh, I didn't even see the pattern you know, I hadn't mentioned this. I was going to tell you maybe at the end that, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was because um, I've been exploring writing a graphic memoir about um, ADHD, more or less. And, uh, and I just, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to learn more about it and everything. And one of the big th pieces to it, as I've kind of workshopped this idea. Like I just did a, a talk that will be online this week. I think there's a, a lot of parallels because, uh, but I didn't ever, I never even saw this where my, my mom actually went through that exact same thing because she left me and my brother to my dad wow. and growing up. That is just, as you said, in, in all cultures, you know, it's, it's very controversial. There's all kinds of um, shame and all this. And the story that I tell on stage is about when I realized that I have ADHD and that I probably got it from my mom, that it changed everything about how I saw what she had done and what the circumstances were and everything. Um, and I won't go into all that now, but that, it, but I, I didn't even, I don't know how, but I had it put together the parallel, um, with that. But, um, I said, all I say all that because I was curious if, yeah, I was going to follow it up. You're saying that that perspective, that take, uh, that different opinion on the, that, that the series of events, that occurred after you had been working on this book? Because I was curious if that was like part of the reason I wanted to tell that story or how why I knew it was a story was that it had that kind of aha eureka moment feeling of like, oh, this is a totally different, that this is a story because I, my perspective just dramatically changed. Are, are you saying that it was almost like you knew there was a story there and then as you dug into it, you found this thing? D does that make yeah. sense as a question? Do you remember when you were in high school and you had, um, that you were given a proof equation and to, to, to prove in math class or algebra? And you know, the, you knew the answer that X equals two, right? You like just looking at it, I'm like, I know that X equals two, but the thing is that you have to like work backwards and show the math. You have to show the proof, right. To get to X equals two and you have to do it all backwards. And so it's like, that's the same thing with storytelling is that you know that something's there. You, you have a hunch that that is, is the case, but you have to now go through the work and prove the point to yourself 
um, and to your reader. Because if you can't prove it to yourself, then you can't prove it to your re reader. That was the same thing in I Was There, American Dream. I knew at the end of the book that I would say, uh, I Was There, American Dream is about me coming to terms with my Filipino-Egyptian-American identity. And I knew at the end of the book, I would have to be comfortable and say, when I say that the, the sentence, I am American, I have to believe that sentence. I'm, I know that at the end of the, the book, I'm going to believe that sentence, but I need to do the, 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 the I have to show the, the proof, evidence yeah, yeah. to get to that point. And in that is in the writing and in the, um, in the writing and in, in, in the drawing and in the illustration and the storytelling, I have to get to that point. That makes so much sense to me. And I, you know, um, you talking about getting to the end of the book and crying and feeling all these feelings. It's so, uh, relatable to me because as I, I've been working on that story, the podcast listeners have heard pieces of that story over the past eight years. Cause I've been working on it right for a long time. And Just when get I it done, Andy. <laughs> well, I'm trying to, that's why I'm talking to you. I'm trying to figure out how do you do this? Um, it's, it's true. Um, and actually I'm going to talk about practically how you do it. Cause I, I feel like, um, doing the research, I, I, I learned a little bit about some of the way that you scheduled it this time around, which was fascinating to me, which I want to get to in a second. But, um, but it, I love, I mean, I already think of stories as a proof anyway, which we don't have to get into that, but what's, hits me really hard is one side kind of felt like, Oh, I think this is the story that I want to tell. It wasn't until I started telling it. Like I, when I did this talk, I basically melted in, into a big pile of tears. Cause I was just overwhelmed, but it, it was because I knew this idea was true that I believed it, but it was in the crafting and telling of the story that I felt how true it was to me. And mm. so that idea of the power of even for yourself, you know, I'm sure you feel this with you get, you can get an element of it just by the diary aspect, just the part for you, let alone sharing it. Um, and it's like a way of really, uh, you know, I think about story being like, it's a way of getting people to feel something they know. Um, uh, <laughs> But it's also a way of you doing that for yourself of like, I know this is true, but when you, f when you go through the work and you feel it, all of a sudden, it's like a value. It's like a core part of you. And that's I, what I, I say. Just, writing yes. is like free therapy. Yeah, you know, it's right. like, oh, I'm processing all these years of emotion about my trip to Egypt and I'm spending two years on it. And th that's my therapy on it. And then you wrap it up in a big bow at the end and you're like, well, I wrote that book and that's my narrative on that. So I'm going to move on from it, which is another set of problems. Cause you've, once you've written memoir, it's like, well, this is the narrative that I've already set out for this feeling. So, or this chapter of my life. So I can't deviate from that narrative now. So yeah. that's, a, that's another yeah. set of problems. I, I definitely, uh, I definitely relate to that as well. Um, okay. So talk, let's, I want to get to the, uh, um, the scheduling aspect of it, because you, you approached the creation of the, these two books that you've done very differently in terms of scheduling. Uh, could you first maybe just give a, a little picture of how you did them differently and maybe, uh, for any creators out there that struggle to get stuff done, um, and then also, 
um, get through bigger projects if you have any, any tips. Um, but yeah, if you could just kind of tell us a little bit about how you, you approach them pretty differently. Yeah. So I first want to say that like, and you know, this too, um, is that like, you, you know, talent is like one very small part of, of, of your success, right? Like you really need like discipline and drive and ambition to get the remainder of the part done. I have met so many artists who are so good. They are so, so painfully good, but they don't have the, the discipline to sit down and do the work. They're perfectly fine. Um, uh, just, you know, being a great artist and that's, and I was like, Oh, but you could totally, you know, you, you know, you totally meet those kinds of people all the time and it really hurts. Um, so the discipline is very important. Uh, for the first book, I was their American dream. Um, I basically did not take any time off working on the book and I worked on it after work. So I would uh, finish work at 6 PM, be home at seven, um, spend time with my husband from like seven to nine and then, uh, you know, make dinner and that kind of thing. And then from nine to one, I would basically work on writing it, drawing it, et cetera. And I would have these, I'd schedule these like weekly meetings with like my editor uh, to sort of review what I'd worked on and then make revisions and then start the process all over again until I completed nine chapters over the course of many, many months. Um, I didn't know how to write a long book. It was 160 pages for I Was the American Dream. So I pretended that I was writing nine zines. Uh, a good trick. It's a good trick. a good trick in itself. For, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. That's great. Um, I also learned, uh, so for the second book, um, I decided and realized that I had wasted a lot of time um, drawing. I was doing everything in thumbnail. I was drawing everything first rather than deciding what I wanted to say first. I didn't know what I was saying when I was drawing. I was just drawing until I figured it out. I thought that the better use of my time this time around would to figure out what I want to say first and then, and then especially because I wanted my stepmom and my dad to buy into what I was doing and sign the contract. And then only then would I begin to thumbnail it and adapt it to comic. So um, I worked on the manuscript, which is about 50 pages, which is 200 pages in comic form, if you can believe it or not. Uh, I worked on the manuscript, like just for fun at the, uh, you know, at the end of 2020, which is like when everything was shut down, there was nowhere to go. There was nowhere to be. I had a lot of free time. So I did it then. And then once I realized, okay, the hardest part is going to be adapting the manuscript into comic. So I'm going to take three months off of book leave at NPR and, um, and just that, that is all the time that I'm allowed to take. So I have to get it done in that time period. You know, they say like, you know, if you have six hours, you're going to turn a piece of work you're going to spend six hours doing that, that piece of work because you had six hours. Yeah. Well, there's only a law have... about yes. it that they're like, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, if you have 30 minutes, you'll do it in 30 minutes. You know, if you have six hours, you'll have you'll do it in six hours. So I was like, I only have thir- three months to do this project. So I have to get it done by this time. So I drew the entire thing in that three month time period and then spent the rest of my like free time when I was back to work, uh, making revisions with my, editors then but it was a less painful process because I knew what I was going to say coming into the comic book project and I had a system in which I had to complete five pages a day I basically just here's how I did it I I did the math I basically said okay how long does it take me to make a page of comics 
an hour and a half and I have, I'm going to work an eight hour day. So I'm going to get about five pages done in black and white. And I, that was only, oh, and I did some other reverse math where I was like, for me to complete 200 pages at the course of three months and I have to finish five a day, I could have spent more hours working on one page, but I was like, you know what? I've only got two hours to do a page. So I'm just going to do it, get it done. So I literally just like worked on the, like I did as much work as the time would allow me to do. I often think about this in general, just a sidebar about like, if you got five minutes, do a five minute job. If you got an hour, do an hour job, you know, like that means that you can add more details and whatever, but if you only got five minutes, you're only going to have a five minute job. So I just had to come to terms with the fact that like the kinds of illustrations I was, I was going to make wasn't going to be perfect. So I had to like prioritize what I wanted to communicate on the page. And thankfully for me, I'm a person who's very interested in like saying the most with the least. So that was a fun challenge for me. That is fantastic. I, I wrote down these tips. Uh, the first one is break it down into chunks. Like instead of, Oh, I'm writing a book. You're just writing nine essays or nine zines or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like to, for me, mentally kind of the gymnastics you have to do to figure out how you can be confident, um, uh, in it. You just gotta, you gotta figure it out. And I love that. The second one was, um, have a global pandemic where everything shuts down. So you just have a little, a little space to, uh, to, to, to write the manuscript. Um, that one's not suggested. Um, but the third one is, um, do the math and make the constraints part of the brief. I totally, totally believe in that. Like if, if you're frustrated that you only have five minutes to make the piece of work, um, that can make you not do it at all. But if you just see it as like, yeah, that was one of the deep, that that's not an obstacle. That's just one of the constraints of the brief. Um, then you have to make the best drawing you can in five minutes. And, and I think it's interesting too, of like, um, you know, even, even myself, I don't, uh, until I was making picture books, wouldn't have an idea of like, how long does it take me to do a full page spread? I don't know, but, um, doing that math is really useful for your productivity and, and your, your mental health and, and everything. Just kind of having a sense of how long does it take me to do this stuff so that, I need to do this all over again too because I keep over scheduling myself. But I think that um, I think that's that's uh, super helpful, and I appreciate it in my own journey to potentially turn this story into um, some kind of uh, graphic memoir. So thanks a lot for that. I'm sure I'm sure that um, you've heard this, but that story idea sound I mean the memoir idea sounds so wonderful, and I can't wait for that book. Oh my gosh! Thank you so much. That means a ton. Um, coming from you. And, uh, I, I, I am, I feel very lucky to be able to talk to you, uh, after I had such a great experience reading your work. And I love, you know, I watched both your, uh, creative mornings talks and I love the energy that you put in the world and the way that you approach creativity. So, um, I just, uh, I'm really grateful for you making time for this. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Andy. That's very kind. It was great to be here. Huge thanks to Malika for making the time and, uh, and and putting so much time and love into her book. I just really loved it, and uh, it was it was a dream to get to talk to 
an artist and an author that has inspired me so much. Um, you can go can, uh, check out Malika's work, malikagarib.com. Uh, you can find all of her stuff there, which is M-A-L-A-K-A-G-H-A-R-I-B.com. Um, and it's her name on uh, Instagram, at Malika Garib as well. Um, go give her a follow and um, pick up her latest book. It won't always be like this. It is, uh, it's just fantastic. Um, thanks again, Malika, for being on the show. It was a great talk to you, and I hope we get to talk again. Um, I also watched two of her talks online, and they were great. So if you're looking for someone to come to your you know, studio, your creative uh, company, your conference, whatever, um, I think Malika would uh, be a great person to come um, speak for you. Go ch- you can go uh, look into how to book her as a speaker as well uh, on her website. Um, thanks again, Malika. And uh, thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for theme music. Thanks to Connor Jones of Pending Beautiful for editing this show with so much love and fun. And um, thanks to Katie Chandler, Ryan Appleton, and Sophie Miller for all other podcast assistants in all formats, which also means pep talking the creative pep talker uh, himself um, on a regular basis. Anyway, thank you. And I hope you got some pep from this episode. And um, until we speak again, stay pepped up. Stay pepped up.